All day, every day, we need to know. Finally, they've received the long-awaited roadmap. Know what's happening and how it's hitting home. Victorians rushing to get vaccinated. I'm Peter Mitchell. To know the news, join me for 7 News at 6 o'clock. Millions of despairing men, women and little children. Victims of a system that makes men torture and imprison innocent people. You cannot shake hands with a clenched fist. Produced by a nuclear exchange would be carried by wind and water and soil and seed to the far corners of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. We're not saying that planet Earth is coming to an end. We're saying that planet Earth is about to be refurbished, spaded under, and have another chance to serve as a garden for another civilization. Most of the people in here are just your reflections. They're your mistakes. 1776 will commence again if you try to take our firearms. One million of the planet's eight million species are threatened. You are what you repeatedly do. Therefore, excellence ought to be a habit, not an act. Your lives and the credibility of the United Nations is at stake. Epstein didn't kill himself. The reason this is such an interesting time is not only because we're on the threshold of the end of this civilization. They're trying to take you out with bullshit. The experience of the past two years has proven beyond doubt that no nation can appease the Nazis. To those who can hear me, I say, do not despair. The misery that is now upon us is but the passing of greed, the bitterness of men who fear the way of human progress. The hate of men will pass and dictators die, and the power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. In the language of the US Department of Defense, these are unidentified aerial phenomena. Roswell's a very interesting place with a lot of people that would like to know what's going on. Uh, there is very compelling evidence that we, uh, we may not be alone. This is the Garden of Doom. Welcome everyone into this episode of Garden of Doom, and this is part of our theme month. And today we're going to go into the world of British science fiction. My guest today is Emery Potter, who I'm going to let he, him introduce himself, like Austin Powers, allow myself to introduce myself uh, in a few moments. I'll give you a little background on how I know Emery. I probably haven't seen him in like eight years, but we've kept in touch on Facebook. But I've known him probably 18 years, something like that, somewhere in that neighborhood. Um, I know him from a trade group. Most of you know that uh, in real life, I am and have been a lawyer. And most of you also know that in real life, I used to be a bigger shot of a lawyer. And when I was, I was in this trade group. And Emery was a few years older than me, probably still is. Um, and he was around, he was at the level of big shottedness I wanted to get to. Um, so, uh, you know, he, he was sort of like, uh, uh, informal mentor, if you will, or someone that I followed. I don't think he ever really knew that. Uh, but then I found out he was really funny. He made like this great speech on, on one of the floors where he, he recreated the Khrushchev banging on the, on the shoe on the podium thing. And from that moment on, I was his acolyte, whether he knew it or not. 
I had instantly fallen in 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 love in a, in a completely platonic uh, notion. Um, and, you know, so we, we got to talking and it turned out that Emery was sort of like me in that he knew about a lot of different things in a lot of different areas. Unlike me, where my knowledge would be like kiddie pool level, he was deep in knowledge, which of course made me mad and jealous. Um, so I picked his brain and I, and I insinuated myself into his methods and it turns out he just read a lot. And I'm like, well, I read a lot. So I'm like, what's he reading? And so he gave me some book suggestions and he told me to read, read Neil Stevenson's Cryptonomicon. And I'm like, okay. And I looked into it. It's like, it's 1200 pages. No fucking way. He's like, he's like, read it. It's worth it. He's right. So if you haven't read Cryptonomicon, you should read Cryptonomicon. It's among one of my favorite books, as is Reem D and, and the trilogy that came after Cryptonomicon. And if you're, if you're intimidated by the number of pages, you shouldn't be because you probably read three, 400 page books. And unless you pick the exact right, the exact right books, those three, 400 page books aren't going to be nearly as satisfying as Cryptonomicon is, um, or the entire world of Neil Stevenson, which doesn't always connect, but some of it does. Anyway, we did some book exchanges ideas and, and he, tended to like my recommendations and I tended to like his, but I also noticed that he liked a lot of things that I didn't, but some other of our mutual friends liked those things. And as it turns out, the common through line was British science fiction. So for me, British science fiction was sort of like Tenant, where the guy went into a dream, but he was in another dream and then he was another dream and then another dream. Too much. So British science fiction to me, and I never liked it, but I didn't realize it was British science fiction. So everyone, when they were a teenager, at least in, in my time of life, read Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. You sort of had to, whether you wanted to or not. And I didn't like it because, you know, first you got the, the humans with their problems. Then you've got the aliens. And then you realize that there's other aliens. And then you realize that there's mice. But then the mice have fleas and the fleas have their own story. And then there's another dimension and the other dimension has a, it's just like enough. I, I, I don't, you know. You know, three or four plot lines, that's enough for me. I don't want all this other nonsense. I don't care about the story about the fleas and this stuff. But people who like British science fiction, it's never enough. They, they like it, and that's different. So that's a pretty big prelude. That's an oversimplification. But Emery is going to walk us through British science fiction, some of the uh, premier properties, some of the things that he likes. Uh, and we're just going to shoot the shit about it. So Emery, after that very long uh, introduction... Introduce yourself and how are you today? I'm doing pretty good. Thank you very much for the massive amount of praise. Um, not particularly creepy, but it was really, really nice. The uh, Hitchhiker's Guide statement you made, one of the things I've always told people about that particular book is that you don't, you don't approach it like you approach other books. Most books you sit down and the more you read in one sitting, the happier you are with yourself. The more you enjoy the book, the more you get into the book. The problem with someone like the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is when you read two, after you read one chapter, you just need to stop because it quits being funny. And I've read through all of, all four or five of those and the, uh, the Dirk Gently series of, uh, about the detective that he did that they put on TV, but I've never watched. And I found I really had to do that with the books. Uh, Terry Pratchett, 
Um, I don't know who's familiar with him. It's not really science fiction. He's more a uh, fantasy author. Um, did Good Omens. I don't know if anybody saw Good Omens on Amazon. I think it was on. Do you know? Uh, I don't know. I don't have Amazon, believe it or not. Okay, well, Good Omens, if you haven't seen it, is some wonderful British fantasy sci-fi uh, type stuff. And I recommend watching that on Amazon. It was in Amazon or HBO. Okay. One, one thing, um, stop tapping your thumbs because people are going to hear it. Second of all, if you want to know creepy, look outside that, that big window behind you and I'm going to be standing there. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I don't even <laughs> joke. Um, for those who don't so know... Those who don't know Terry Pratchett, he did a lot of collaborations with Neil Gaiman. If you don't know Neil Gaiman, you actually do because he did American Gods, which has been like on Showtime or Stars for the last three or four years, and it's gotten some notoriety. He's actually done other things, but was it Terry Pratchett who did Neverworld, or was that Neil Gaiman? Uh, Neverwhere? I don't know. I just actually watched the whole night, the British... um, version of it that they had on the BBC. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's about the under, underground of London, that there's a whole other city under there. Yep. And um, it, to me, what I, I found that on YouTube and watched it because I really wanted to see it because I really enjoyed reading it. And that was one of the moments where I looked at it and said, I knew this was British science fiction as it existed in the 80s, 90s, and before, which to me always was you come, the, the, the people must come to BBC and say, here's what I want to do. Wow, great story. We'd love to do it. They say, well, it'll cost X. And the BBC says, I'll give you 16% of that. <laughs> and then there's <laughs> all of the effects are horrible. Yeah. Um, you know, that's like it takes you to the early Doctor Who, the one I grew up with, the curly hair. And um, it just amuses me. And I think it comes out of the British uh, history of having theater everywhere. And so they're used to not being able to make everything as fancy as possible. And I'm just so glad that the Doctor Who people, um, whoever made it, when they put in the last guy and just changed the show. It was fabulous. I could finally really, really enjoy it. Not that I didn't get a kick out of it from time to time, but it, it could get pretty campy. Yeah, I, I grew up with the same Doctor Who you did, and, and I watched it, but I can tell you I never really got into it. Part of it was the effects, but honestly, back then, you know, lots of effects were campy. You know, a lot of the sci-fi movies, a lot of the dinosaur movies, Land of the Lost, Planet of the Apes, the original Star Trek. So it wasn't just the campiness. I just never really got into the whole British science fiction thing. So we're going to try to explore that. And I don't know the best way to do it, but I think probably Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and Doctor Who are probably two good places to start. But I think your first suggestion, which maybe wasn't a suggestion, is a good one that unlike other things where you, you just power read, you try to read as much as it and you try to get through it, that part of with British science fiction is you take a little bit, you stop, you absorb it, you enjoy what you enjoy, and then when you're ready, you go back and, and you get more. Otherwise, maybe what happens to me happens to you is that it's sort of too much. I haven't tried a horror. I don't know if you ever read the Bernard Lumpley books, which were titularly horror books about about a, a vampire, but it didn't stop there. It, it, was, uh, it was like a vampire was trying to possess somebody's soul, 
And it turned out that the guy, he, the guy who he's trying to possess was what they call the necromancer. They, he, he could talk to the dead. So the vampire wasn't trying to possess the soul. He was trying to use him as a platform, but the necromancy was the, was the attraction. But of course that was, see, that is enough of a good story to me. That's a horror story that could work. He, the guy is doing things is, is it his own evil? Is it, is it Hyde and Jekyll or is it the vampire? Is that real? Is it, is it? something in his head, sort of like the A24 movies, which sometimes it's a real demon, sometimes it's just somebody losing their mind like the lighthouse. Um, but in the Lumpley books, what happened was, it's real. The British uh, Secret Service is trying to recruit this guy for their mission, but they have other sort of superpower people, like their own like X-Men, so to speak, and they have their own stories. But on top of that, the Russians are also trying to find them, and they have their, like, x-men and whatnot and they all have their own stories and the stories have their own sub stories and sub stories and it just keeps going it's like it's like one of those hall of mirrors where it, it like feels like it never ends and and i'm sure it does end somewhere but somewhere before the point it ends i always check out and go that's it's enough for me i i can't do this so emory is here to for those of you who are not like me or maybe those who are but have more patience than me to say this is what it's about and that, and this is how you enjoy it and who some of the names are but probably Douglas Adams and Doctor Who and Gaiman and, and Pratchett are probably excellent places to start well if I may I'd like to just go a little further back and just do a quick run through yeah sure when you think about British science fiction you think of who really started the British science fiction H.G. Uh, Wells, The Whole War of the Worlds. Mm -hmm. um, he's fabulous. I've read almost everything he's written. Yep. And you would think, because the books are so old, they wouldn't be entertaining, but it's not true. They're very, very good. There's a reason people try to make the movie The Island of Dr. Moreau, and there's a reason they fail every single time. Yes. Because you just cannot bring what it is to the screen because you can only make it in your head. But Wells was big. Martian invasion, you know, tanks, um, big stories. So we move further in time to now, you know, Tolkien is not science fiction, but his best buddy, C.S. Lewis, not only wrote the Narnia series, but he also wrote some science fiction, uh, out of the silent planet, Paralandra and that hideous strength. And as usual in British books, their morality plays. I'll talk about the middle one, which is my favorite, Paralandra. I mean, you've got Adam, Eve, and the devil on Venus. And it's all starting over, except the devil is talking. And it is fabulous. It's one of my favorite books. And they're written for adults. I'm not sending you off to go read Narnia. Uh, these are actual books written for grown-ups, as is almost everything he wrote with Narnia. Then we move further, and in terms of British science fiction authors, we come to Arthur C. Clarke. He also wrote big. 2001 A Space Odyssey, he didn't even write the book first. He just helped them make the movie and then wrote the book. Oh, wow. But if you read a lot of his what I said, oh, wow, I didn't realize that. If you read a lot, I'll stop that. If you read a lot of his science fiction, um, you'll find that he is hard science fiction most of the time but really has characters that are very good um, the, the Fountains of Paradise is a book that he wrote it's about getting to space without rockets it's about building an elevator to space he puts it in Sri Lanka 
Uh, it'll, it would have to be in South America for it to actually work, for the mountains to be high enough and be at the equator. Wait, wait, wait. But, you you, you got to expand on that. You, you need to expand on that. What? <laughs> okay. Essentially, the idea is, okay, Arthur C. Clarke invented the geosynchronous satellite before he, we could even get into space. He said, if we take a satellite and we have it orbit the Earth at the same speed the Earth is moving, it'll stay in the same place above the Earth, and we can bounce stuff off of it. He came up with this in the 1940s, okay? So as he slowly began to work on this idea, he said, well, let's build a huge geosynchronous satellite, essentially a base, but a big, heavy one, built down from it and up from the mountain at the same time to where now we have a entire thread that goes from the earth to space. And then when you get space, when we get to do our mining on asteroids and such, you bring it, you put the rocks in the elevator and we put whatever we need to take up and, and it powers itself. No, yeah, no combustion engine, no huge clouds, no, none of that. And uh, people have taken this very seriously. Uh, there have actually been, the U.S. government's done surveys to see whether it's possible. It's not quite yet. Well, he was he was but, right about AI. I mean, he did, uh, you know, how before uh, AI was really a dream in most people's minds anyway. Oh, without a doubt. And uh, his series, Rendezvous with Rama, has had a big effect on science fiction. And that is when an alien spacecraft um, does not come to Earth. No, it's using the sun to slingshot itself. So it's on a certain destination and it ends up going through our solar system because it's slingshotting off of the gravity of the sun. And some people get on it and the life forms on there communicate in a different way. And it's for first contact novels. It's one of my favorites. But once again, the theme I'm talking about is their sci-fi tends to be big and, or it tends to be a morality play. And that's where we end up with people like Pratchett. You know, if you really look at a lot of Pratchett's work, he is rewriting Shakespeare's plays in another form. I read one that was definitely Hamlet and one that was uh, definitely Macbeth. Um, my favorite of his is Small Gods. It stands pretty much alone and deals with the concept of, you know, a god is only as strong as how many people believe in it. And where all the gods go that fade away, and uh, that's and it's funny. And once again, if you read too many pages, you won't laugh anymore. Right, and that's a, that's a problem. Neil Gaiman, there's just no stopping. You know, um, the Sandman series once again isn't really science fiction, um, but it's coming to the screen, and it's going to be fabulous. What's it coming to? Uh, uh, it's the Sandman series by Neil Gaiman. It's pretty much the thing that launched him to superstar. No, but what? Uh, is it going to yeah. be movies? Is it going to be on Netflix? Is it gonna, or... It's going to be like Netflix or um, I think it's Amazon. I don't know. Yeah, Amazon. <laughs> anyway, uh, you know, it's the story of uh, of Dream. Uh, and... It just has all the different characters. All the different characters are envy and death, and it's really fabulous. Once again, real morality play stuff, but has just great stories, and it's episodic as opposed to um, continuous. So there's a continuous framework that it all has, but there are episodes that go in, which not British science fiction is one of the things I liked about The Mandalorian. 
I like going back to episodic television. I'm getting sick of everybody making me have to watch every episode of everything and be stuck with it to find out whether little, little Billy lives or not. <laughs> so, uh, all right. Um, Douglas Adams, I kind of talked about him. Another thing about the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is he's making fun of all the previous science fiction in the books. Um, so there's a scene uh, where they come in and the commander of the ship is commanding the ship from a bathtub. Yes. Right? Well, there's in the Foundation Trilogy by Isaac Asimov, one of the classic works of science fiction coming to Apple Plus later next year. Um, one of the scenes is the captain of the ship has to make a bunch of orders over the phone from the bathtub. So he's it's making fun of a lot of different things but it's that kind of humor if it doesn't work for you it doesn't work for you yeah I remember you recommended a show called Happy For Me on Sci-Fi I have some friends who love that show I watched it once I'm like I'm out yeah I just yeah it struck a nerve with me I really 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 enjoyed it well it's it's just that kind of thing with the levels so why do they do all the levels like what, what what is it about the Brits and their levels, because it's not just these few guys. It's like, there's an author. I, I'm going to botch the name, but it is his first name is China, uh, whether he pronounces it China or not. I'm not sure, but that's how it looks phonetically. And the last name, it's not Melville, but it's sort of like, that. it's like Me- Melville or whatever. And he did something like the, 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 the station of purgatory, which I read and it was interesting, but it sort of lost me, but I finished it. He wrote another book that was called Kraken, which I actually really like that one. It went a little bit too far, but not too far to lose me. And I, I really enjoyed the book Kraken. And then there was something else. I can't remember what it was, but it's just like I couldn't I just couldn't do it. I, I, and I and I I just don't understand what, you know, the, the Terry Pratchett, the, like Neil Gaiman, that's perfect. I, I can do his stuff. I can do like American Gods is sort of actually it sounds like he took off of Terry Pratchett's small gods. I think you said it was. So American gods are sort of the same concept. What happens to the old gods when they when they go away? It, it was an adaptation, sort of what happens to the old gods when they come to a new land where they don't necessarily have the same power and there's other gods, you know. And it's not like they were talking about, you know, Christianity was was killing them because they were there were there were there were plenty of Jesuses too. There was Mexican Jesus, there was Greek Jesus, there was Russian Jesus. They were all in America and they had less power. Than each other, that was enough for me. Like like those levels, I I could get with that. I I understand all that. But Terry Pratchett was like level after level after level after level. It's like oh go away. Like Neverworld was perfect for me. It's like that one I got the the there's there's this underground. There's this secret like world behind the curtain or rather beneath the curtain. That that one I got. But uh, you know all the others. Then I tried to go on a little binge and I. Read three books. I'm like, I hate all three of these books. Why am I? Why am I doing more? I'm stopping. Well, you know, I think if you look at British culture compared to our culture, you might see some of the reasons why you don't enjoy the books as much. And I'm not here to insult the UK or insult America when I say this. These are just things that I've observed Please. over the year. The uh, the British culture has been a class oriented culture for a very very long time. The way you talk will immediately put you in a certain class. You've got a Cockney accent, and it's real. People are going to treat you a certain way. Um, 
when you look at the British dramas um, that you see, and I'm just talking about regular ones, there's always the, you know, the upper class and then the middle class and uh, the servant class, essentially. And they are more used to the concept of a king, more used to the government being rather omnipresent in their lives, while we as Americans are more, there are no, there is no class system. I mean, it just doesn't exist. It never developed here. Um, people would argue against me. I'm, a, I'm not talking politically. I'm just saying, I can't look at you and go, but I'm a lord. No, I can't. And um, so that segregates their society, which I think to a certain extent might have something to do with the concept you're talking about with levels. Because there are levels of society all the way through. It's not like India, I mean, where you have so many castes. But they were very much treated that way. And they think differently than we do. Um, while I just read, finished a book on uh, the Churchill and his family and um, the Blitz of London. And they handed out diaries to people to write so that they could collect all the diaries at the end and see what everything else was like. You know, that's a mentality we don't even have here. We'd be like, the government gave me a diary to write? Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, uh, and so, you know, you have to understand that some of this is going to be ingrained into people and the way they write is based upon the society they live in. I'm trying to remember the name of the book I just finished that I, drove me crazy. Um, <sighs> Red Sun Superman. No. <laughs> Funny. Um, but it was, it'll come to me. It was about uh, clones that were going to be used for organ harvesting. And it was all the relationships between them and how they lived in their, their place and what they did and when they had to have the, um, the organs taken out. It was called a donation and they would brag how many donations they could survive. And then all the way through the book, I'm going, why don't you revolt? Yeah. But they're stuck. They're out walking around in England in this book. And I'm like, you're out on the street. You're free. I'd be gone. You know? And uh, but that, that was not even a concept in the book. That's a, I think it, and this was sci-fi to a certain extent. It was interesting in that it was written after the 1990s, but it's 1990s science fiction, which was kind of a cool thing. I got it. Well, you, you're, for, you're forgetting one thing. and Well, you're not forgetting. I think you're leaving it out to be polite. But in the, in the British class, there's not just the servants. First of all, there's the prideful servants that are very proud to be in service of their lords. Then you have sort of the disgruntled servants. And then there's sort of like various levels of the wretched class, you know, and, and then the and then the and then like the economies that serve the wretched class, which includes the criminals. So when you put it like that, yeah, there, there's there's definitely levels and they're more fixed. And I think, and I think that anybody's knee-jerk reaction to we have that too. We've got rich versus poor. Well, every place is rich versus poor, but it's not so ingrained. It's not like you know, not everyone who's rich is a Kennedy. Very few people who are rich are a Kennedy. I mean, you you could have, you, you know the 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 three CEOs of the big you know tech companies. If you saw them walking down the street, you wouldn't go whoa. I mean, everyone knows Zuckerberg's face at this point, but. 12 years ago, you didn't. And, and, the, and the guy from, uh, what is it, YouTube and uh, Twitter, I, I don't think you'd know them if you were standing, stricken next to them at a bar. You'd probably think that, you know, one of them was just a, you know, just a regular, you know, coffee drinker and the other one, 
he'd be lucky if he got a job as a barista, if if, if he just looked at the way he looked and, and whatnot. And, and you'd be wrong. He's worth billions. So, um, you know, you're right. We don't really have that sort of obvious ingrained class just by clothes or whatever. And there's so much knockoff shit here. You can't even tell from what somebody's, you know, if they're, if they're draped in Chanel, it's probably phony for, for the most part. And now that's a whole political tangent I could go off on, but I'm not going to hear Good. because it doesn't fit. Um, so that's the great Gatsby. <laughs> so, uh, you know, we've talked about some British sci-fi on television and I did a little bit looking around for some of the old British science fiction TV shows. And I found two that are on now that, are just fun to watch. I mean, no, you may only watch two episodes. Pick one at random. It doesn't matter. But the first is called UFO. And it only was one season, but it is from the 1960s, and it's stylized as can be. The outfits on the women are incredible. Uh, the, the show is so cheesy it's uh, we're full of uh, different kinds of aliens landing here and they're the agency that deals with it it's kind of a men in black but no comparison between the two <laughs> okay yeah they're the same idea but that they're totally different things i think that's on tubi and uh it's worth a watch of an episode or two i gotta tell you um Another one, which is one of my favorite, just because of the sheer ridiculousness of the premise. Uh, did you ever hear, watch Space 1999? Yes, Martin Landau, of course. I mean, a nuclear dump on the moon explodes and suddenly the Earth is going at interstellar speeds? Uh, no. <laughs> right. Yeah, that, that, that's, that's not how physics work. But, you know... But what it has going for it is one, Barbara Bain. I'm like, as a kid going, okay, there's a hot girl with gray hair. Oh, my God. Um, the, the animal changing woman that was on there. Yeah, the, with her uh, eyebrows, there were dots. Yeah, Mar- yes. And Martin Landau. Um, just fabulous show. Utterly stupid concept. No one even bothers to pretend that it works. And the ships were just... <laughs> So perfect. I think I made a Space 1999 rocket from Estes Rocket Company and shot it up in the air and probably lost in a tree. I 100% made that thing with where it had like the cup sort of uh, bases as as their landing thing. And it was almost like like a precursor to Battlestar Galactic, except just the head. The rest of it was thin. And it was like sort of like almost like on catamarans that ended with like little suction cups at the bottom of it. You're right. It was so campy. But at the time... I thought that it was the cool alternative to Star Trek. Oh, without a doubt. Without a doubt. It was awesome. <laughs> and that woman, what she turned only into like three animals, and like it was usually a tiger, which was awesome. You have a tiger in a spaceship. Yeah, invader, there's an invader off to your right. No, no, on your right, there's some there's someone that's there. I think they're gonna attack you. Turn your heads. Uh, I don't want you to die. I remember reading an either Dynamite magazine from Scholastic or Bananas magazine from Scholastic, how they did the special effects, and they used the bar. They slide the bar across and uh-huh. makes one picture into another suddenly and put together the little kit they gave you. So, ah, it was popular. I enjoyed it. Let's see. So we were cruising our way through British science fiction, and I got into the 60s with Arthur C. Clarke. We jumped forward to Pratchett and Gaiman and such. 
I'm trying to think of who else that, uh, or what other types of sci-fi shows. Uh, yeah, they're not famous for their movies. Well, I don't know a lot. Well, Doctor Who has like forty years of of stuff, so we could probably spend a little time on like who is Doctor Who? What's the premise? I mean, I as long as I've known that Doctor Who has exist, I've probably watched six episodes in my over fifty years of existence. As I understand it, he's sort of like a Green Lantern type of like guardian of time, but sort of thing. I mean, I'm sure he's a time lord, and they're or she. Now, uh-huh. is a time lord that can only be reborn so many times, and they have run into uh, that problem now because, based on what the uh, the canon is of Doctor Who, this is the last reincarnation. So the one we have now um, with a woman, it's pretty good. I'm enjoying it. I don't watch it as much uh, because I watch Doctor Who because I have a son and. Someone turned him on to it, and if he wants, we watched it together. Sure. And so I really got into that, those episodes. But, uh, yeah, he's a time lord, and it's going to be interesting. I, I don't think they can make more. They're going to have to change the story, which has never been a problem before. I mean, hell, a whole season of Dallas was a dream. Yeah. So, um, so what's the premise of Doctor Who, and what is a time lord? Uh, to me, the premise of Doctor Who is really just to have a cool science fiction show, and he's a time lord, and things go wrong, and he is always teamed up with a human, and they get into all sorts of trouble and try. People are trying to mess with time. I mean, it's not like the sacred timeline in Loki, um, but it, it, I really just think it's an excuse to go out and have a lot of fun. Really, there's not a just but I mean, you know that the the crying angels—they're so cool. They're so cool, and uh-huh. they're so perfect for a science fiction low-budget show when they originally came out because they freeze when you see them. Not a lot of money spent on frozen statues. So, what's a crying angel? Uh, the crying angels um, are literally when you look at them, they're made of stone. They look like the angels you would see in a cemetery. But when you turn your back on them and don't look at them, they move. Oh. And they come get you. Are they actual angels? Like, you know, from like, you know, the, the Bible angels? Well, I don't know exactly their entire background, I have to admit. But, I mean, they just look like if you've ever gone into a really old cemetery and there are big statues of an angel somewhere crying over it. That's the idea behind it, except that they creep up and kill you. So are they monsters, or are they guardians of time, or are they some sort of super species? Oh, no, they are, they are what they don't want to run into. Okay. Whenever they're on their hijinks, whenever they get into the phone booth um, and go off of what they're going to go do, um, that's one of the enemies of Doctor Who. So who created Doctor Who, or what created Time Lords? And I assume their purpose is to keep time on track? Pretty much, and I have no idea because... I don't remember much from the ones I watched when I was younger. And it pretty much the premise was so well set when I got there that uh, they really didn't, you know, it just existed. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. So, so, uh, they, so there, there really is no origin story. It just is. And, and you're just, you're just plopped into it. You don't need to know what started the time Lords. It's just something that's immemorial. How, how many times can they be reincarnated? I think the number's 10. I'm probably wrong. Might be nine. But this is where whatever it is, we're on the last one. 
okay. until they change the canon. Gotcha. Okay. I'm, I'm trying to tie it into other things, but maybe it's pur- purposely not tied into other things. I mean, any number that you give some person, depending on, you know, what religion or expertise they're in, they'll always tell you that's a sacred number. Like, it's like every number is sacred. It's like a, a Monty Python, every sperm is sacred, but, uh, you, 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 know, you, you know, you, you say seven, oh, that's a sacred number in the Bible. You say 13, that's a sacred number. 12, that's a 13 number. 52, that's sacred with the Aztecs. I mean, there's something that's always sacred and, and somehow you tie all these numbers together. Everything's sacred depending on whoever it is. And if, of course, you're one of those folks that believes that everything is the same thing, then they're all sacred somehow. So, it, it, you know, if everything is sacred, then nothing is sacred. You know, if, if everyone's as good looking as you and me, nobody's handsome, you know, because because we're all, you know, basically the Vitruvian man like, like we are. Yeah. <laughs> that kind of reminds me suddenly of that uh, um, uh, Kurt Vonnegut story where the ballerina is having to wear chains because she's so good and she's so much better than the other ballerinas Aww. that they have to make them all equal. Aww. Great show, great story. Yes, it's, it's, it's very sad. All right, so I guess we should go back, back to the British science fiction. So you're not familiar with the China Mealville, which I'm sure, I'm, again, I'm saying it wrong. Um, is Neil Stevenson British? Uh, no. Okay, good. Well, that's is not. That explains why it's perfect. Though you would think he was, and an example I would give for that would be the scene in Remedy when uh, he's at the airport trying to get a flight, and he spends a page and a half discussing the fact that there are Rice Krispie treats there, and that Americans don't make food out of ingredients they make food out of food that already exists so that marshmallow <laughs> that the, the crisps are, are that they're already a food and then the marshmallows you melt on them are already a food and then starts talking about all the different things we make and do and uh that's what made me think he was probably british so i went and looked it up and i don't remember where he was from but he did not yeah well those are different types of levels that's a it's an entirely different thing and that that but you know, we have to make the food first to make the food out of the food. So I mean, it's 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 only it's it's a it's a flawed foundation. It's just our our building went higher. That's all. USA, USA. Um, anyway, um, so yeah, so but Stevenson worked with. I think it was did Stevenson work with Gaiman or Pratchett or both or neither? I know Pratchett and Gaiman worked together quite a bit. Right. I don't know. I heard something about Stevenson might have done or be doing something like that. He's a pretty intense guy. Yeah, I think it was the Neils. I think it was like something like, what you've been waiting for, Neil Gaiman, Neil Stevenson. But I, I think that maybe something happened then, then COVID happened. But there was something like two or three years before that that happened, like, and everything got delayed. And who, who knows? Things are, you know, always canceled. And, and then you go back to, uh, like, like, I think, um, Peacock, maybe, like did a Brave New World, terrible. Uh, Epics is doing War of the Worlds. It started out interesting, but now it's just a slower version of The Walking Dead. Um, you know, and yes, Foundation is coming. There's a, a new remake of Dune coming out, which the the original Dune is one of the great books of all time. It's like it's like it's as deep and as many, you know, complexities and as pl- much political intrigue as Game of Thrones, except it's in one book. But there, if you love it, there's like 17 others. Um, but, of which I have read probably 13. <laughs> yeah, no doubt you, you know, did. Is Frank Herbert, was, was, 
Was is he British? I don't think so. I don't. Think um, so. I don't. But I, I would like to take the opportunity to just uh, point out that if anyone did like Dune, the trilogy with the prequel of um, uh, the Jesus incident, the uh, Lazarus effect, and the Ascension factor are three books he wrote. And they came after a book called Destination Void. He wrote about people who wake up on a spaceship after being in hibernation. And uh, they start to, and this goes back to your sacred numbers, they start to worship. But they worship the ship Ah. because it gives them everything. And they don't understand anything else. And then this one had the trilogies about them arriving at a planet, trying to colonize it. And the ship is up above, and now they can no longer see the ship, but they still worship. And then it's really great. And the planet is insanely deadly and just fun stuff. It's really, really good. The names make you think it's religious. It isn't particularly. Um, there are some obvious portions of it you can tell that are there, but no, not, not really. Oh, they are so good. I loved those books. Have you so ever Herbert's good. I've read almost everything he wrote except for his New Mexico drug stuff, and I didn't dig it. Yeah, I, I, I don't blame you. Sorry, there's a. This is not um, fantasy or science fiction at all, but there was a. There's a British author named Bernard Cornwell who wrote a lot of. Basically, he's most famous for the Saxon Chronicles because. The Last Kingdom is on Netflix, and it's of Uhtred and, and all that, and it's sort of uh, Saxons versus Danes mostly for the for the most part. But he wrote like a, a spy novel. I, I I think it was called Scoundrel, um, and that's actually a great spy novel. Um, but most of his stuff is historical fiction. Before he got into the Saxon Chronicles, he wrote something else. Like I, I think it was I think it was a bunch of uh, you know ship books. You know, like uh, like the Master and Commander series, but not as intense. Anyway, that's a but that's entirely a different thing completely. Um, and but uh, there's an author named Richard K. Morgan, and people might know his science fiction from Netflix. Did two seasons of Altered Carbon. The first season was quite good. The second season was an absolute disaster, and they didn't renew it, rightfully so. Um, but the but the books are great. It's a trilogy. But I only read the books because I read another book, which was a standalone. And the reason I'm getting to it is because it sort of sounds a little bit like yours, where somebody wakes up on a ship. And the book is called 13. Um, but the, the, the people wake up on a ship. They know where they're from and they know where they're going from. But it wakes up where it seems like, and you don't really know what's going on, so you have to piece it together, which I love. It's 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 intelligent science fiction. And, and you're not really... what sure what's going on, but I'll just spoil it because I'm not going to assume that everyone's going to read every book we've talked about here. But basically there are sort of, there's like enhanced humans or like the, almost like the envoys were in Alter Carbon, not exactly, but close enough. Let's just call them like super enhanced hitman, like super soldier types. And in order for him to survive on the ship, what he was doing is he was basically using a laser to defrost the other passengers in you know uh, you know for short amounts of time and slicing off parts of their body can eating them as, as cannibals and then re 
cryo cryogenizing them and putting them back in the shell. So they were they would wake up in abject pain, horror, terror, whatever. And before they could even process what was going on, he you know basically shut them back off again and put them in the shelf. And he he because he's a super soldier, he was able to calculate how much time to get back to Earth. And by the time he got back there, he had eaten everyone. There was nobody left or whatever, or something like that. Anyway, the point was he's he's like he's like a killer for hire, and he's horrible. So when they find out that he's there and he's back and he's basically a psychotic, you know, super soldier, they have to, I think they awaken or they find their last super soldier to sort of go after them. And I know it sounds trite at this point, but it's not. It's a brilliant, great book. It's called 13, Richard K. Morgan. Now, this is judgment-free. What he did before this and, and probably after is he did fantasy, but it's usually in the gay fantasy uh, category when they used to categorize books that way. It isn't. It's it's regular fantasy books. You know, swords and sorcery is what I mean by fantasy, not like, you know, dreaming about stuff, fantasy. But a lot of the characters are gay. Okay, you know, big deal. In 2021, big deal. Maybe in 1997, people thought that was a bigger deal. I don't know, whatever, whatever it was. But if you're not, if you don't dig that stuff at all, you don't buy it, stay away from the fantasy, but the science fiction stuff, for better or worse, judgment-free, touches nothing on that. I definitely recommend 13, and I recommend the Altered Carbon, all of it. It's not easy to follow. You have to think, but I like that. I like when you have to think. Have you ever read William Gibson um, books? Yes, I read Neuromancer. Okay. Neur- Neuromancer is a book that actually somebody from that group, uh, actually, no, it's a different group, uh, told me that, and... I read it. I'm like, I'm not sure I understand this. Let me let me tell you what I got out of it. And he's like, yeah, that's about right. Uh, and then I'm like, oh, thank God. But um, William Gibson is Neuromancer is probably his most famous book, and it's science fiction. And and we can certainly circle back and you can discuss that if you want to. But he wrote a book called Spook Country, which is I'll call it a spy book, but it really isn't. It like sort of defies a genre, and it's brilliant. And then he wrote a book called, I think, Zero History. It's also brilliant. Um, and it's also sort of a thriller. And he wrote a, uh, a sequel to um, Zero History, which I haven't read yet, but I'm looking off to the side because I'm looking at The Fall and uh, Peripheral. Peripheral is the sequel to Zero History. And The Fall is the sequel to Remedy, uh, two books I have not yet read because I forgot how to read. <laughs> Well, um, just on the whole, you know, talking about the difference between British culture and American culture, uh, the concept of why it would be sort of intense for them to write a book about uh, with gay fantasy in it in the 1990s. Uh, we all know who Alan Turing is, right? Sure. You know? The Turing yeah. test, sure. Yeah. Well, he was um, he was sterilized by the government for being homosexual. Swell, nice gov. Which government was this? England. Okay, well, in the nineteen fifties, he was sentenced to that. I now just, think about it. I, being gay in America in the nineteen fifties was a social problem, but they weren't going to come and sterilize you. Yeah, that, that's that's yeah that that's that's a bit that's extreme. That's wow. Okay, yeah. Okay, I listen. I'm just I'm just relieved it wasn't America. <laughs> <laughs> and so you know, you're wondering why didn't he flee the country? Well, it's a long story. Don't want to go through all of that. But uh, that also takes you back to uh, Cryptonomicon, 
where um, he uh, has Alan Turing in the book. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's one of my favorite books of all time. Now, I'm trying to think. I had one book I, I, I thought of, but I did not know whether the author is British or not. It's all right. She's married to married to someone British. Her name's Mary Doria Russell. Okay. She wrote a book called The Sparrow. And it is one of the books that right now I just got a little chill up this one. Ooh. It's the favorite my favorite book I'll probably never read again. Okay. Um, the story is essentially that our radio telescopes pick up music from space. And they're able to locate it, triangulate where it's coming from. And they determine where it's coming from, and the whole world decides they want to get on do a mission to go there, see these aliens. And they're all working hard about it, all the governments are. And the Jesuits of the Catholic Church have more money than anybody, and they they um, put together a asteroid that they clean out the middle of, put what's going to be the ship on it and propulsion on the outside, so that when it runs into any space junk, it's just taking stuff off the asteroid. And they get there first. And it's a first contact story about not understanding how things work and it all going horribly. And it's just very well written. And it has the advantage of it is a morality play at the inside, at the very outset when they're before they go into hibernation on the ship. There's a whole discussion about religion and et cetera. And when they encounter the alien species, um, you kind of know what biases the people have from the discussions they've had about what their religious framework, how they look at the world. And uh, it's just well-written. It is. It's it's really good. She also wrote a book about uh, 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 Jews fleeing an Italian town during um, uh, World War II. Uh, that is just fabulous. So she's all over the place, but her sci-fi was well done, and she thought through some of the hard stuff. You know what? There's hard sci-fi. There's soft sci-fi to me. Soft sci-fi is cowboys and Indians in space, i.e. Star Wars. Mm-hmm. Okay? I mean, say what you want about it. I love Star Wars. I'm kind of faded off. It's gotten a little too big for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, yeah, it's cowboys and Indians in space, which, of course, why... I went to the theater to see Cowboys and Aliens because, well, it was fun to everything together. <laughs> Except it wasn't, but that's, that's a different story. And, uh, you know, I'm going to circle all the way back to the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. That's fine. Um, that's one thing about British science fiction, loops. Everything loops, loops around, so... So that movie, um, I thought they did a good job uh, uh, casting most deaf as the alien it was fun it was okay it just I think it was the same thing about the book the BBC um, miniseries of it is hilarious partially because the special effects are so bad and some of the stuff they do is so good. I mean, when the, there's a scene when the whale appears out of nowhere and goes crashing down. Well, it's 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 a little claymation whale, <laughs> and it's 
It is so funny. The Marvin the depressed robot looks terrible, but oh, it's just it was so superior to me to the movie version. I think they tried to Americanize it a little, but I can watch that and I will laugh no matter what. I, I have I've seen that and I agree that that was better. The, the movie I, I I didn't make it through the whole thing. Yeah, I understand that completely. Now I didn't see it in the theater. I I've never walked out of a movie in a theater, no matter how bad it was. But at, at home, I've learned that if I'm not into I, and it took me a while to learn this. I mean, it, this is probably within the last five years where I've actually, if I've started something, I've learned I can turn it off. Really? Because I've walked out of, the first movie I ever walked out of in the middle was some horse racing movie, a comedy starring Ted Danson and Howie Mandel. And it was so painful. And we were to, we were to sit them in draft house. Ooh, yeah. And left. Like, let's just finish the beer and get out of here. Yeah. Um, yeah, I can. Can you stop reading a book? I couldn't until, oh my God, I forgot her name. It's it's a woman author and she wrote a series of books. That, she's definitely British, but it was like monster books. It was like, it was like vampires and it was almost like True Blood where there was like, you know, at first it was interesting because you, you had some vampires and then it turns out there was one werewolf. But then it turned out that every third person in this little town was, you know, had some sort of monstrous, you know, superpower or supernatural. And then it's like enough, enough, enough. Uh, it was like that. I think her name was Tess Johnson or Tess Johansson. Anyway, it was about, it was about, I stopped early on. I'm like, I'm like, I know I'm not going to like this. And there's, there's been some others where I just stopped. So, oh, you know, one of them because I, I admitted it on Facebook and I said, Okay, I have The Handmaiden's Tale. I've been on page 210 now for six months, and I don't think I'm going to finish it. Um, and if I actually click on the app for audiobooks, if that even still exists, it will still open up to page 210 of The Handmaiden's Tale. And you said to me, he goes, you said, men stink. They're trying to subjugate everyone. You know the rest. Of it. it doesn't get better. If you don't like it now, just stop. That, that, that was, that was your, I'm like, I'm like, you know what? Emery's like one of the smartest people I know. Uh, and one of the other smartest people I know is either your your law partner or your former law partner, Bo. I, you know, and uh, I'm like these are, he's these are combined two of the smartest people I know, and I'm, and I'm going to listen to him, and I'm not going to try and finish the book. I, however, did buy some other books by Atwood, which I did enjoy. You know, the one author that I've not finished more the more books of is Robert Heinlein. I read Stranger in a Strange Land all the way through, and almost every one of his books, I've gotten to a point where I said to myself, if everyone suddenly died, would I care? And I said no, and I put down the book, and I quit reading. I have to admit, I, I am one who has done that a great deal. I'll get to a certain point and go, no, I'm done. Well, I'm and a heel. I'm a heel by nature, so if I don't care if everyone dies, that is often because I've taken the side of what's supposed to be the villain or the monster or the alien or the bad guy. And so I'm okay with everyone dying because my hero is, is the, is the villain. And I, and I switched, you know, I switched that, but you know, but I've always been a heel. My, my first favorite professional wrestler was Don Morocco when he was the magnificent Morocco and he was a bad guy. So uh, when I was watching planet of the apes, when I was a kid, I, I understood the apes and I understood Dr. Zayas's position on everything. And and I, and I thought they were right. So, you know, so I've always been bad. I think that's always been one of the points of Planet of the Apes is they are right. Yeah. I mean, it, it's it's like people are still shocked when I said, 
how old were you when you, you realized the Greeks were the villains in in the Odyssey and the in the Iliad? And people are like, what? I'm like, yeah, they, they, they mean, I posted on Twitter yesterday. I said, I said, just a reminder that, that Helen not only left Greece voluntarily, but enthusiastically. Go, that's it. That's the tweet. No, got no likes, no reach. Nobody understands what the hell I'm talking about. But yeah, I mean, and, and the, oh, well, I think I went a little bit further because it's almost as if Homer came back from the, from the future into the past and wrote that as a metaphor for, the next 3000 years of history where Westerners are so confused that everything of beauty belongs to the West, that they, they do terrible things to the East and beyond. But in this case, it was the East. Um, and I'm not trying to, you know, say everything that the West does is bad. I'm a Westerner. I'm a proud American. And I think that we've done plenty of good. I think capitalism's done plenty of good. I don't want to get too much into politics either. I mean, but hardly perfect. And one of the best things Europeans have, has ever done is to kill other Europeans. I mean, they're very, very good at it. Um, but, but, you know, but the, but the Trojans who are in Turkey, um, are, they're by far the good guys in that book. And Odysseus, who's supposed to be the, the, you know, he, he loves his wife so much. He must make it home. It's this 11 year voyage. He sacks up with the witch for like two years on an island. You know, he loves his wife so much, except when the hot witch is there, who's like, her kids are what, like a uh, Charybdis and Scylla, Scylla, like two monsters, like sea monsters. And he's like, eh, yeah, I can deal with that. It's like, you guys, crew, you fend for yourself. I'm going to, I'm going to be here with Cersei. And next thing he knows is like two and a half years later. He's like, oh, I better go back to my wife who I love and I'm devoted to. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> come on, man. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that was. Pretty much when I took English lit in college, that was the argument that took place in the class. And the, the women, none of the women liked Odysseus for some reason. Yeah, cause go figure. Because he's full of shit. Everything. I mean, he was smart, but everything had to be his way. I mean, and that's realistic. There's people like that in the world that like they think they're moral and everything has to be their way. And yeah, they're right about a lot of stuff. They're really smart, but they're they're flawed. And the same thing that makes them intense makes them take what they want and then be able to justify it, but it doesn't make it right. <laughs> it's like, it's like you can't go babbling about all the time as he was proclaiming to the world, how much he loves his wife and you know, which in his own way, I'm sure he did, but he also sacked up with a witch for two and a half years. And, you know, just to completely respond with something that doesn't apply, but so yes. <laughs> do it. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> In terms of guys that uh, like to go out and have lots of girls, uh, I believe myself that Ian Fleming's Bond series kind of counts as science fiction on a certain level because everything he had didn't really exist at the time. All the spy stuff he had. Okay. The novels are not as filled with the machines and really cool stuff as the movies are. Um, but they still do have him having really cool spy stuff. And, uh, it's interesting that the, what they've tried to do with that character over the years, because he was definitely, I mean, treating women like garbage. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know? It's uh, so that's always been a, a portion of, to me, the British mindset. And I, I think that takes us back to what they all went through. I mean, they've been through so much more than we can imagine. We haven't had, war on our turf since the civil war well it depends which we you're talking about here but uh, <laughs> i mean i think if you're a native american or you were a yeah, chinese immigrant and imported for 
you know, indentured servitude and, and, and obviously the African-Americans, I think they probably say different, but I, I know what you mean. Like, you know, the, the, well, I, I, I'm just saying an actual land war. I yeah. mean, we're not talking about oppression. We're good at that. I understand that. <laughs> uh, we have practiced. We know how to do it. We're good at it. Right. Uh, but we're getting better and we're getting better. And I think things are not nearly as bad as everyone makes them out to be. Um, but once again, that's getting back into politics. Um, and now I'm starting to, starting to stretch to find many more of the British science fiction things that I can even uh, discuss unless we're going to talk about whatever the, the animated spaceship show that I used to watch as a kid because it came on at 5 o'clock in the morning after the farm report. Do it. Um, Do it. Huh? Do it. No, I can't remember the name of it, but they were these puppets. They were in a spaceship and everything was silver and i really wish i could remember it was horrible and i, I loved every moment of it well silver, silver is the universal color of space yeah, but truly it yeah truly so, it. i mean and, and like i don't know why more fashion designers are making gray jumpsuits because we know that's where things are going <laughs> oh that's funny that's i mean this funny. would be uh, you should have, like i mean somebody should do like gucci should just make or Chanel, just make gray jumpsuits that are completely, you know, uh, uh, proletarian and like, you know, have like the real housewives of Beverly Hills wear them. And all of a sudden everybody will wear them think it's high couture. And it's like basically, you know, uh, garbage bags with sleeves and, and holes for your legs. And, you know, and I mean, I think it'd be great if they got some good sturdy plastic and put the, uh, the Louis Vuitton logo all over it and make it incredibly uncomfortable and a hideous color. And they'll sell a lot of it because the letters L. And V appear on it. But anyway. Yeah, just just L wouldn't do it because that's Laverne. Just V wouldn't do it because that's uh, for Vendetta. But uh, but yeah, LV, absolutely. LV, also, I'm I'm intrigued. I need to go buy that. (laughs) I have have a Louis Vuitton belt, but um, I got too fat for it. (laughs) And and I realized that I can get a longer belt, but it's like, who cares? Because I don't need to wear clothes anymore because I work from home. So, like, you know, if I even if I, if I even put on sweatpants, it's it's like a you know it's a big deal, um, you know, pants period. No, I'm kidding. I wear pants, as far as you know. Anyway, um, <laughs> so you know what? I I skipped totally. I just said who you were. Is there anything that you want to say about yourself? Um, I would describe myself as someone who was a voracious reader as a child. Um, I used to go into bookstores and read the first chapter of a bunch of books and then buy the ones I liked or I'd go to the library and just pick out a bunch of books and read the first chapter. Any one I wanted to read the second chapter of, I took home. I, uh, I love to read all over the place. Talking to me now would make you think I'm just this massive science fiction fan. Um, what I do is I rotate my books to keep myself going. I read a nonfiction a classic, a um, trashy, funny novel, and then usually a sci-fi or fantasy. And I try to kind of roll in that order so that I don't get stuck in one genre. And, you know, one of the things that I have noticed about our society is that now that there's so much volume of everything, that there are fewer and fewer renaissance men, women, um, that was a goal I set for myself when I was very young. Don't know why people have better goals. 
don't know, but I wanted to know how to do everything. And it's gotten to the point, you know, when I look at my news feed, is there are people that could get all everything from a comic book point of view, all their news. There's news, I mean, it's just all over the place. And I think people have become more and more focused on one particular thing because there's just such a volume of it that they don't move and look at other stuff. Um, and that's why I like to keep the books I'm, I'm watching very varied. And I also read my wife's books from time, from time to time, which is very interesting because I do not sometimes understand the point of view of the book very much because it's written by a woman and it's written for women in general. But and you're all man, whatever. Yeah, and uh, but I have loved them. You know, there are a few that I'm just great, and it's nice that we can talk about them with each other the way we do. Ah, huh? Ah, yeah. Hey, man, I, I, got, I got a sweetie, buddy. Actually, I, I've done some of the this similar things, though. I don't. I'm not as strict about the rotation as you are, but I will definitely if I, you know feel like I'm in the rut or something, I will force myself to do something else. And I found different genres I love because of that. So, you know, and, and some of it was because I did it on purpose, others because I just felt like, hey, I should read Mishner. And so I read a bunch of Mishner books, but you can't read too many of them in a row. But because of Mishner, I found Rutherford, who I actually prefer to Mishner in a lot of ways. And it's different parts of the world. And, and you know, it's great. And then you know, and, and that leads you into Ken Follet, which, but, but if you want some more candy, you can read those Bernard Cornwell, the Saxon novels or, or whatever, and still be historical fiction, but it's definitely more on the fiction than the history. And, and honestly, after a while, all the Utrecht books are the same. You know, it's almost like the Clive Custler books. They're, they're all the same after a while. But, um, but I, uh, what got me on this is what you just said that you would read your wife's books. Now, I never did that. I'm not married right now, but, but I was for, you know, 15 and a half years. Um, but I did purposely read some books written by women. And one of my favorite books is a book by, I think her name is Isabella Rosanova. It's called The Historian. It's damn near a thousand pages. And it's about someone who, you know, is sort of being haunted. It's sort of a horror movie. It's a horror book, sort of historical fiction, but basically she's looking for the historical Dracula. Now, in the end, she finds the historical Dracula, but it's not really a vampire book, but it is, and but it's really good. I read this, I think her last name is Moss, and she wrote like Labyrinth and, and uh, Sepulcher. I, I always say that word wrong. And some other books like that. And Labyrinth was really good. It was like one of those books where there's two stories. One is in what was then present day, and then one is basically the character, same soul, but like during the Merovingian Crusades in France. And the dual stories where, where the one in present day is sort of realizing that she's the same character and that's helping her solve the present day problem. But the, both stories are great. And, and, you know, the, I, I hope I've, go ahead. I've seen those books and never checked them out. I, I go to, I go to our library all the time. La um, I think it was Labyrinth. I, I read it. I, I'd recommend it. I, I thought it was really good. Now there's, uh, a male author, I think he's male, his name is Guy Gabriel Kay, and I enjoyed a bunch of his books, and one of them was called Isabel, which was definitely a more feminine point of view. Um, I told my wife at the time, I go, I think you should read this. I think that you'll enjoy it maybe even more than I did. She didn't. I was wrong. But uh, but I, I enjoyed that book, too. Uh, but I, 
this is neither here nor there, but uh, the first book I read of his was about Vikings, of course. Um, but the, the second book was called Under Heaven, and it's sort of like a Chinese ghost story, politics, war story, but more of the... It's, it's sort of like Game of Thrones, a little bit toned down on the magic, but a similar amount, like just enough that it's not overwhelming, uh, but it's called Under Heaven. I, I definitely recommend it. All right. Well, let's see. I have things to say about myself. Other than that, uh, I am, I don't know. I just have read and read and read and read and read and read. Um, I, I will make a recommendation that has nothing to do with this. If someone has never heard of the man, his name is Carl Hyacin. He writes some of the funniest books ever written. About Florida. And they're about Florida, so they're insane. Um, it's sort of like guess, a, it's sort of like Elmore, Elmore Leonard, but everything's in Florida. Yeah, and I, I think he writes better than Elmore. It's it's I it's different. Agree with me, but you know nothing against Elmore Leonard. The books are great. Yeah, and who's the other one that writes sort of in that in that vein? There's Elmore Leonard. There's Carl Hyacin, but there's a third guy who uh, it, it'll come to me. I actually prefer Elmore Leonard, and not just because of style, but because the, the, the stories are more varied, but the highest in Florida novels, and there's, there's sort of like a recurring character, so there's a through line in most of them. I mean, at some point he probably dies, and they probably pick up something else. I haven't read all the books, but they are very funny, but I mean, especially the way people feel about Florida now, they've sort of felt about Florida for 20, 25 years now, and it just keeps getting worse every year. Um, by the way, the, the show Atlanta, which is genius. And by the way, talking about Renaissance Man, Childish Gambino, Donald Glover Jr., Renaissance Man, brilliant. Everything he does is great. The show Atlanta is terrific. It's amazing. Actually, you're, you're in the, that part of the world. So hopefully you've watched it, but there's one episode they call Florida Man. And if you don't want to watch all of Atlanta and you don't want to want to commit yourself to two or three seasons of great television, mostly half hour episodes, so be it. That's on you. But if you, but if you're willing to watch one, find the Florida Man episode. It's amazing. And spoiler: at the end, there really is the Florida Man. <laughs> oh, funny! Um, I have not watched those. It's been recommended to me. I've been a fan of Donald Glover back since he was doing the YouTube videos with a, a group of guys that are just horribly offensive. Um. They are wonderful if you can find them. Mm -hmm. uh, a line in one of them is, don't believe him when he tells you it's a mouth-based video game controller. I mean, they are... <laughs> <laughs> they are hilarious. They are so politically incorrect. It's insane. Spelling bee. Yeah. Glover spelling bee. See if you can sit through that one. Oh, my Lord. So, um, I haven't watched Atlanta. Um, so good. I, I think we just began to... Stray so far afield that uh, I don't even know where to go. But God, it's good to talk to you again. Yeah, it's good to talk to you too. Um, yeah, so I'm, maybe you should say where you know me from. I mean, I know I gave my spin of it. Maybe you should give yours. I know from trade shows. Um, we used to go out and eat dinner together all the time. Um, uh, Jeff used to give me fashion advice, and so I dress like a preppy southerner. Pretty much, that's it. Uh, we have gone out for many a good night of, uh, at bars and one tequila bar in particular comes to my mind where I just had a rollicking good time laughing all evening. 
How'd that happen? The, uh, you know, we spent a lot of time together, uh, giving, you know, we gave presentations. I still talk all the darn time because they know I will. Right. Me too. Uh, and uh, we sent business back and forth to each other. So that's kind of how we got to know each other. But it's it's the one thing about trade organizations that's important is showing up and looking at people and actually creating relationships that you just can't do over the internet. Yeah. Um, LinkedIn is a scam. <laughs> if, I guess if I'm going to close on some sort of if that's okay, I don't know how much time we're supposed to do or what. There's no magic amount of time. Yeah. And if you find your through line back to some of uh, the British science fiction, that that's fine. Okay, I will uh, just tell to tell you one thing about myself that will make you make somebody kind of understand who I am and where I am with books. When my wife was pregnant with our son, we read that after about the fourth month, or I forget whenever their ears develop, that they need to hear the father's voice a lot. You need to talk so that when the baby comes out, it already knows the father's voice, and that's a comfortable, warm place to be. So I read her The Lord of the Rings out loud. Wow. That would, that would sum it up because she never would read it herself. And I was so proud of her when I was out of town at a meeting or something. And it was the premiere of the middle book at the theater. And my wife said to me, I'm sorry, you're going to have to see when you come back. I'm going open at night. <laughs> and and the, fun, the funny thing is I tried to do the same thing with the Chronicles of Narnia. And I remember them being light reading. They're not light reading. The topic's light, but, but it's it's... It's cumbersome language. Actually, Lord of the Rings flows much more easily. Uh, and, you know, I do mean to compare C.S. Lewis and Tolkien because they're very similar, but I think Tolkien, is, I think it's both better and easier to read. Um, but, you know, they're, they're both, you know, you know, uh, allegories for, you know, basically Christianity, but they don't have to be if you don't want them to be Christianity. Well, I mean Tolkien is not so much Christianity as the natural world versus industrialization. As you watch the orcs tear everything up, they represent the new industrial world of the machine gun. Because he was in World War II and he came back kind of shattered from it. Anyone who came back from I mean, World War One came back shattered from it. Mm. And so his book is about the fight of the natural world versus the industrial world in a lot of ways. One of my favorite C.S. Lewis moments um, is from a book called The Great Divorce. And it's a very, it's a Christian book. Um, and the title The Great Divorce is how we actually divorce ourselves, people divorce themselves from their faith thinking they're following it. And there's one scene in it that's just my very favorite. And essentially it's a train that's taking these people out of hell. And all you have to do is ride on the train and walk across the grass when you get there. And they're riding on the train to get to be out of hell. And one of the ministers that's there gets off the train because he's supposed to give a presentation and he thinks it's important. And his presentation is going to be on what Jesus could have done if he hadn't died so young. Gotcha. And that was just, that just said the world to me about the way that people look at stuff. Right. Exactly right. Because that that sort of defeats the whole origin story. Um, Anytime have anything else that you think I might know a lot about, uh, you are a, a good interviewer, and I would love to be on your show again. Well, it's easy to interview someone when it's a conversation. I mean, we already know each other, but no, I'd, I'd, I'd love to, and, and, and you're a fount of information, um, and definitely will. So I want to, two things, one which is sort of afar, but maybe it's, so whenever I think about 
Tolkien now, I can't divorce it from the Snyder Cut Justice League because that war in the beginning where everybody aligned themselves to defeat Ares, I mean, it's just a complete takeoff of the five armies that originally battled Sauron. So did you think that the Justice League Snyder Cut was a great movie, a good movie, or just that? Or did you not see it? I did. Okay. And I saw it as a, as a play thing. It was, it was fun for a while. I enjoyed it. But it was nothing more than that to me. Okay. It was like, oh, I'm going to go watch a DC superhero movie. And to me, I was always a Marvel guy. Me too. Uh, my favorite DC people were Batman, no superpowers. Green Arrow, no superpowers. And is it Swamp Thing or Man Thing? Swamp Thing. Swamp Thing. Because it was so good. Um, but that's the kind of way I am. Superman doesn't really interest me most of the time. I love Batman. I think that most people who are DC fans are like that now. And because I'm more of a Marvel guy, I don't quite get it, except that it's more relatable. I mean, I think most people, it's all like professional wrestling or golf. Like everybody thinks if they practice enough, they could be that. They could be a professional golfer or a professional wrestler. But no matter what you do, you can't be Superman. Yeah. And one thing that, you know, we didn't talk about that I intended to was Judge Dredd. Oh, yeah, please. No, I just love Judge Dredd. I love every movie they've made. I love the comics I've read. It is so beautifully Britishly dark and yet kind of funny at the same time. You like the one with Carl Urban? Yeah. Really? Yeah. I preferred Stallone. I preferred Stallone, but I liked the one with... He was a... Stallone wasn't... I don't know. I, I enjoyed it. I, I got a kick out of it. I wasn't obsessed with Stallone in it. So it just, that whole post apocalyptic thing. I love Tang Girl. I've read some of the comics, even though they're French. Um, <laughs> <laughs> which is usually a bad sign. Well, well aren't are the British just imported French and Scandinavians and Germans anyway? Well, they had a lot of Viking. Um, so, yeah. I love Judge Dredd. If you ever get a chance, you just see a comic somewhere. You're in another fellow geek's house. Pick it up. You're going to love it. Did you know, did you see that that they did DNA evidence of the people who were around Stonehenge and likely the builders? And it turns out that they're not Celtic. They're not, you know, they're not European. They're mostly Turkic peoples who now Turkic people's people think Turkey, which is true, but the Turkic people didn't start in Turkey. They started in Central Asia. So Turkmenistan, you know, think of the stands and they, they went over to Turkey and they sort of followed the, the, you know, the, the rivers and, and the, you know, uh, and they made their way, but apparent, but there's, turns out there's a lot of Turkic people over there. The interesting thing about this society, well, I mean, it's interesting in and of itself, uh, because you never really thought that the ancient Britons uh, you know, had a lot of Turkic involvement, but the, if you remember the Aeneid, um, where Aeneas, you know, basically came from Troy and, and founded Rome. We're not going to go through the, the, the whole thing, but Aeneid had two sons, uh, Romulus and Remus, I think. And then they founded Rome basically, but they had children and one of their kids name was Brutus, not, not at two Bruti, but a different Brutus. And so these are Turkic people from Turkey, remember Troy. And Brutus 
is where the legend says came comes Britain. The, the word Britain came from Brutus because he took some of the Trojans and kept on going and founded Britain. And it's it's a it's a myth, it's a story, but it's just amazing that that it turns out Turkic people were there some six thousand years ago, you know, up till at least forty five hundred years ago, whatever, until I guess you know everyone interbreeds. Um, but probably built Stonehenge and and the Aeneid. Well, I guess we'll just call it the sequel to the Aeneid, even though that's not the case. But a legend that comes off of that is sort of verifies that because when the Trojan Wars happen, really isn't very clearly defined. It, it's like at least several hundred, if not a thousand or more years before sort of like Athens became a power and before Alexander and certainly before the Romans uh, and and they have stories before. So it's, you know, it, it could be any time. It, it could be any time you really want it to be as long as it was in the uh, Brass Age or Bron- I'm sorry, Bronze Age. Um, so there's that. So I got off on that. So since I'm famous, I'm sort of famous for my digressions and we're on episode, you know, we're, well, I'm not sure exactly when this is going to drop because of the, of the theme month. I have to find that time, but we're several dozen episodes in, into Garden of Doom. I figure at this point people are listening and they partly enjoy my digressions. So, cause if they didn't, they, they would have tuned out a long time ago. Um, but what I want to do and bring it back is as our expert, if you were to recommend five to 10 British science fiction books, what would those be? And what would the order that you say to pick it up so that you can get a taste of it, figure out if you like it and get to the great ones and sort of, and sort of be well-versed. So if you are in that conversation, you find yourself in the corner of the room with people talking about Dr. Who instead of running away, that you can have a conversation uh, on things and, and you know who Douglas Adams is and you know who uh, uh, Terry Pratchett is and, and you can you can opine and you can participate and 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 find the, the nerdy tank girl who you have your eye on or the tank guy that you have your eye on or you know whatever pronoun you you want to that you have a shared interest or they have a devout interest in but you have just enough to to you know to 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 put the bait on your hook. I'm just going to start with, I kind of picked a few of those out. Yep. I mean, H.G. Wells, the original War of the Worlds is fabulous. Agreed. Um, for um, Arthur C. Clarke, I would read, I, I would read The Fountains of Paradise, and there's a reason behind that. Um, there's, if anyone watched 2010, you know, there's the part where John Lithgow's got to go from one ship to the other and is heart, having heart problems and et cetera. Well, that's where that all came from, this one book. And it really takes the technology and the um, humanity, puts them in the same story. And it's something that is, in my opinion, eventually going to happen. Absolutely. So it's an interesting topic to discuss with people. And that's a great way to start because he's all over the place and you'll enjoy anything he wrote. Um, with regard, you know, with Gaiman and Pratchett, I'm just going to put it together and send you to small gods, but I'm not to small gods, to, um, oh, good, good omens. Good omens. Um, the TV show is really good. The way it's written is really well done and it gives you an introduction to both of them. 
though uh, Terry Pratchett's Small Gods, it's the book starts with a tur- uh, eagle picking up a turtle and flying way up high in the air. And this is what they actually do, by the way. The eagle will pick up the turtle, fly a little high in the air, find rocks below, drop the turtle, mm-hmm. and then go down and eat it because it sure. crushes, it stays there. Well, the turtle's actually a god from some people from long ago. Yeah. And it, it goes on from there, and it's just hilarious. The, uh, I already recommended the Judge Dredd. The British of Neil Gaiman, if you haven't read, um, uh, it's, Long to, my brain is stopping on me, but that series I talked about, the, uh, uh, it'll come to me in just a second. <laughs> Can't believe it. I have 13 books upstairs. And, um, if you can read those, they are utterly and completely fabulous. They're the ones I talked about earlier that are serialized and are just so good. Uh, I should have brought a computer in front of me because then I would be answering these questions. It's a, you, you know, you know, we can edit. We're recording, so uh, you know, oh. we, we can do that okay. too. We have the technology. All right, and um, the other thing I would recommend: British science fiction. Is Asimov British? No. Okay. But he is a great trivia question. Okay. He has a book in every section of the Dewey Decimal System. Wow. Okay. Yeah, it's a great trivia question. He's he's fabulous. Um, I would actually, I would read the two first two books of uh, C.S. Lewis's trilogy. I'd read Out of the Silent Planet, which is a trip to Mars, and Paralandra, which is a trip to Venus. And I just wouldn't even read that hideous string. If they bring back uh, Merlin, and it's just not good. But what about uh, what about the one where you're saying that Adam and Eve are talking to the devil on Venus? That's Paralandra. That is so good. And then one of my other very favorite morality plays, um, and once again, Frank Herbert is not a British science fiction, but the entire thing takes place in Ireland. Okay. And it's called the White Plague. And what happens is the IRA blows up a car in Ireland and it kills a uh, microbiologist, biochemist's wife and children. Okay. And he decides, he goes, he's got lots of money, he goes nuts, he goes back to America and he locks himself in this underground laboratory and creates a virus that kills only women. Because they took his wife away, and he's going to take away all their women. And he lets the thing loose in Ireland, announces to the world that they need to blockade it because all the women in Ireland are about to die. And so he ends up on a trip, which is just amazing, with him, a priest, a boy, and someone who's lost all their people to the plague. And it is, it's fabulous, it's sci-fi, and it's modern sci-fi. What about, Doug, would you recommend Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy or skip it? I recommend the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy to anyone. Um, it's the, once again, the funnier it's going to be is the more you know about the things it's poking fun at. And as long as you don't read more than one chapter in a sitting, you're going to laugh out loud, which is rare from a book. Yes. Um, though something that I think the British are better at than a lot of people is making you actually laugh. Yeah, they, they are, for very prim and proper culture, they're also, they're, they are very irreverent in their comedy. Yes. It's like the release. And I recommend all of them. 
because, I mean, in so long and thanks for all the fish where they build three spaceships mm-hmm. and one is for all the important scientists and politicians, etc. The second one is, is for hairdressers and uh, a whole long list of people. And then the third is for the working people and they send the second ship off first and then everybody stays. It was just a trick to get rid of all those people. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, hilariously funny but if you've read three chapters and get to that you're like well this is stupid and so you're not going to enjoy it as much the uh that that's pretty much where i guess i'd start um and also rendezvous with rama for a first contact book by arthur c clark is fabulous there are sequels you can read them they're good and they're entertaining but nothing is like the first book so c.s lewis the not the non fantasy stuff, the science fiction stuff, Arthur C. Yeah. Clarke, H.G. Uh, Wells, Douglas Adams, uh, tried Neil, Terry, uh, Terry Pratchett, Terry. Yeah. Neil, Neil Gaiman, um, and is there, I, I'm going to throw Richard K. Morgan in there for the one book 13. Because our buddy Walt loves them. Yeah. I, I would start, I mean... I would do thir- I mean, if you're going to pick one of them, I would read 13. I, I just remember thinking it was spectacular. Um, but I like the Alter Carbon ones too. But, but the uh, thir- 13 actually makes it easier to understand Alter Carbon because it, it's, I mean, I guess after the Netflix series, as bad as it was, it will also make it easier to understand what's going on. Though part of the fun in books is, well, it depends who you are. For some people, part of the fun is figuring out what's going on. Like you have to, you have to, they're building a world and you have to sort of catch up and learn the world. But for other people, they don't really like that. I mean, they'd rather be told what the world is or it's the world they're familiar with and they want to enjoy a book. And I'm not passing judgment on either one. So if you're more of the latter, I mean, at least watch part of the first season of Alter Carbon. Trust me, don't read, watch any part of the second, but the books are better. The, the books are the books are very good. Um, I'm trying to think of who else. I mean, unfortunately, since I don't like British science fiction, it's hard for me to say it. I mean, like I know a lot of people who love the Bernard Lumpley uh, sort of, uh, they call them vampire books, but they're really these super, it's almost like the X-Men versus uh, Magneto's and this evil X-Men. You know what? One other book I would recommend. Yep. Because the movie has nothing to do with the book. I would use the example of Les Miserables. There's a play that has the same name, a book that has the same name, and as far as I'm concerned, they have nothing to do with each other. Um, is The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Ah, I've heard that, yeah. The books are fabulous. They are so very good. Um, the movie would turn people off to it. They added characters to, for the movie. They did all sorts of stuff. But when you bring together Captain Nemo and um, the great explorer and then the girl from Dracula, it's just, in terms of a mashup, it's just fabulous. So I would recommend The League of Extraordinary Time. I mean, it's a graphic novel, but it's one of those ones where there's all sorts of other stuff in there. The only one where they throw on newspaper articles and, you know, kind of like they, um, well, V for Vendetta is also a very good graphic novel, but I, I would agree. But V for Vendetta was not a very good movie. It was okay. 
League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, don't watch the movie. He's right. Don't. I watched V for Vendetta for a second time. Mm-hmm. And I liked it the second time. Love the book. If we're talking about Moore, or what's his name? Alan Moore. Mm-hmm. He's English. Yep. And uh, he wrote those, and he's, there's, I mean, come on. There's just, he's fabulous. Yeah, um, but yeah, V for Vendetta, I highly recommend. I love to make certain comparisons between people and the characters in that book. Uh, for example, the uh, never mind. It'll get a little too political, and but luckily it's making fun of my side in general, so I like that. That's fine but too. Anyway, yeah, uh, that's about it. yeah. With with regret, I can't really recommend Margaret Atwood. I I really hated the Handmaiden's Tale. Obviously, I I only made it halfway through, um, and that's enough time to decide whether I want to make it through the other half. I I think for any book, generally I use a. 15% rule. If I'm not hooked within 15% at this point, you asked me this like an hour ago. If I'm not hooked within 15, 20%, yeah, th- th- then I'm done. Whether I soldier through it or not is, is a different story. But, uh, didn't, didn't, didn't like the Atwood. But if you like, if you like Handmaiden's Tale, I guess you, you should try more Margaret Atwood stuff. Um, so, all right. So we've got Douglas Adams. We've got Alan Moore. We've got, uh, uh, H.G. Wells. Was Jules Verne British? I don't think he was. I think he was American. I don't know, but I don't think he was British. Yeah, didn't he write um, uh, Mysterious Island? Uh, Mysterious Island, uh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, Journey to the Center of the Earth. Yeah, those are all very American. Those that's He's American. All of which I very much enjoyed. Yeah, no, so did I. Uh, it's not British. One think of from time to time that's really fun is Arthur Conan Doyle. Uh, he's known for the Sherlock Holmes series. But John, uh, well, which, which, but, what was the sci-fi? Uh, it's, it's about, God, I can't remember the name. It's a dinosaur thing where they go to an island and the dinosaurs are there. It's something island. It's fabulous. It's just great. Because Edgar Rice Burroughs, who did Tarzan, also did John Carter of Mars books. Yes, which I have the big hardback version and love. One thing about John Carter that's just fabulous is the the cover art. (laughs) No, it was written so that you would read the one section that was in that magazine, and it ends on a cliffhanger at the end of every chapter because that's the way it came out. So if you're like I've gotten and you fall asleep after a certain number of pages when you read in bed, the these are great because it's like it starts one way and then within a you know good 15 20 minute read it ends on a cliffhanger and you get to pick it up on a cliffhanger every time when i was in middle school i don't remember which which year but let's just say it was second year whatever um i had pneumonia so i was out for a week or two i read the entire john carter of mars series in basically whatever that time frame if it was a week i finished them all in a week um Was 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 the Chronicles of Thomas Covenant or Stephen Covenant? Was that uh, was that a British author? Stephen R. Donaldson sure writes like he's British. Yeah, um, this is more I, fantasy, but it's. I mean, the the difference between fantasy and science fiction generally is the tools that they use. I mean, instead of science, it's magic. And instead of ray guns or electronic or devices, it's swords and axes. Aside from that, they're largely the same. 
Yeah, I love the first three com- of the Thomas Covenant series. Couldn't stand the second trilogy. I don't think I ever finished it. I read the first twice. It's a hard. That first book, Lord Fowl's Bane, is a really, really hard book to start. You know, when your protagonist rapes a young girl within the first couple chapters, it's just hard to start the book. I, I think I started it three different times before I finally read it. As people kept, as women kept telling me how good it was. Yeah. Okay. No, it's 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 definitely a hard, and especially. When you're introduced to that book, you're, you're probably, or at least, yeah, you're probably like 13 or 14 years old. It's very, first of all, it's, he's a leper. He's very dysfunctional and angry in this world. But when he gets transported to another world, it's, it's almost like he's like, you know, the savior of the world. And it's like, but he, he still knows who he is. And it's, and it's him becoming a, a hero. I think actually it would be easier for an adult to sort of process that all for a kid. But you're right. Lord, Lord Falsbane was a very tough read uh, to get through. Uh, well, I'm not going to say tough because I loved it, uh, but it's hard. It's hard reading. You had to pay attention and it's and sophisticated. Um, I read all of them and I, I remember being, I mean, like most things, it, it doesn't, it gets worse over time, but I was satisfied with, with the, the conclusion. I think what was it? White Gold Wielder, I think was the, the final. I, I mean, I remember I bought it as a hardcover. All the rest were paperback. So, um, so I, I, I would do that, but it's sort of more fantasy than science fiction, but not, not exactly. Well, he wrote sci-fi. Yeah. Uh, I did not like that series at all. One's like called Through a Mirror Darkly and uh, Through a Glass Darkly, and then he's got some sci-fi, and I tried. Because I love the way he wrote. I loved his characters. I loved the way he could put emotions in you that you just didn't want to even experience. Um, and you thanked him for it. But the, the, the sci-fi series, and I, I can picture the cover. It's, it did nothing for me. All right. So Musts, H.G. Wells, Douglas Adams, uh, Heinlein. Oh, no, not Heinlein. You, you put, uh-huh. Arthur C. Clarke is a must. Um, uh, Pratchett. Gaiman, I'll add Richard K. Morgan, you know, if you pick one, 13. Uh, and who was the other, other Alan one? Moore. Alan Moore. So those are our, those are our seven musts. If you read any one of their books or any two or three of their books, you will be able to have a conversation with people about British science fiction and you will not be an outcast. And maybe you, you'll even love it. And if you do love it, Try China Melville. I would start with Kraken. That, that's probably the easiest introduction. The, the I think it was called Purgatory Station or something station. Um, I, I would go with that one second. Uh, and if you like horror and you like British science fiction, probably the best combination would be the Bernard Lumpley. Um, you know, the, I can't remember what the first one was called, but the, the protagonist, who's by no means a hero, is named Negrosani. And I only remember that because the vampire would always speak in his head, Negrosani. And I remember walk, walking around my house going, Negrosani, and my now ex-wife, and my kids going, shut up! <laughs> Stop with that! <laughs> so, anyway, so we, we, we gave you our absolute seven or eight, and I think I think we've done our job. Ah, well, thank you very much. 
Thank you. I, and, and I know that you're not a veteran or a podcaster. You, you had said you had never even listened to a podcast. So hopefully you'll listen to this one. Hopefully you'll promote it a little bit. Maybe we'll get some new listeners. All I can tell you is that I never listened to podcasts before, maybe 2013 or 2014. Uh, and in 2015, it became essential because I had a really dull job and I could, uh, and so I could listen to them all day long. And now it's like the easiest way to consume information, uh, and, and entertainment. And it's literally the least effort you can do because all you have to do is put the damn thing on and you can do other things. Um, and there's something for everyone. And it's also a great way. I mean, not to get political or newsy or preachy, but if you want to hear, like one of the criticisms of today's society, especially in America, well, maybe ever, I don't know, I'm in America, but is that people get their information from one source. You know, you only get it from Fox News. You only get it from MSNBC. You only get it from CNN. Whatever it is, the easiest way to expose yourself to different points of view is a podcast because it's 15 minutes or an hour. Put it at one and a half speed or double speed. Your hour-long shows are, are a half hour. So I make it a point to listen to National Review, the editors every week, the Dispatch, the Bulwark, which is sort of, you know, former conservatives. They still think they're conservatives that are sort of anti-Trump. The Dispatch is sort of in between that and the editors. But I listen to NPR up first every morning. I listen to The Daily every morning. I listen to Commentary Magazine, which is sort of conservatives from 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 not just a Jewish, but also a very Northeast, mostly Manhattan perspective, which sometimes they make me scream. I want to pull on my hair. I want to punch some of them in the nose, but I need to hear that perspective. And so it can go on. You can, you can, you can find whatever. I listen to the argument, which is sort of, it's like a New York Times spinoff, but there's supposed to be someone from one side and one side from the other. And, and they, and they have a conversation, but it's, you know, things that other people argue about and, and it's okay. Um, but if you're interested in science. So anyway, uh, that that's my little preaching world of the story that it's a, actually an easy way to make yourself better, well-rounded. And um, and if someone says, you're a dummy, you only listen to OAN or you're a dummy, you only listen, you're brainwashed by CNN. You can say, no, I'm not. Uh, I, I feel this way. But I listen to, you know, I listen to the daily. I, so I know what the New York Times is telling me to think. And, you know, so so you can't tell me I, I feel this way because I feel this way or the opposite. You, you Someone says, you're a dummy. You only listen to... Uh, Fox News go, no, I, I, you know, I, I listen to the opponents and, and this, and I still feel this way or, you know, anyway, anyone can figure it out from there. So I'm going to leave it at that, but you know, podcasts are the lazy man's way to get exposed to a lot of different things. And I am, if nothing else, a lazy man. <laughs> Emery, so good catching up with you in person. So good seeing you. You look great. Uh, in the background, I see the house there. So obviously you're, you're doing well or you're squatting properly. Um, <laughs> doing a very great Gatsby thing. So everything's well. Regards to any of our mutual, uh, constituents and colleagues that, uh, you know, I only see in cyberspace these days, but thank you very much for coming on the show, which right now is called Garden of Doom. But I have to tell, you know, and by the time people hear us, it might have changed names. Maybe it didn't, but I'm thinking about a, a change in name because. Garden of Doom sort of was a different kind of personality, and this shows a different personality. But I'm I'm toying with the lazy intellectual. It was a blunder. Thank you, sir. Bye. Bye. Take care now.